which I also detested, was the very bad treatment the investigators gave the prisoners. I mean, in order to get testimony or to get guilty statements from them, they would beat them very severely. And we discussed this. I mean, the reporters discussed this fairly readily at camp, and they used to whisper about some of them. One of the ones they used to whisper about was a Joseph Kirschbaum, who was uh, actually known to be very cruel, a very cruel man to the uh, witnesses. He was obviously Jewish, and he'd been a German Jew, and had left Germany at the beginning of the war and had come back you know, on a job with the army. But he had beaten very severely. And uh, there were some others, of course, who had beaten very severely. And uh, I'd heard so much about them that actually, you know, I was almost afraid of myself. I felt I was still a kid. And they, of course, were grown men, essentially, and they almost frightened me. And another one, I you know, paid so much attention that he actually scared me to death. I really was terrified of this other one. And, you know, he almost haunted me. None of these trials impressed me as much as the first one, I, you know, that was the uh, flyer case, the isolated flyer case. But uh, the trials, you know, were conducted in such a fashion with all this testimony by the professional witnesses, who incidentally were recognized as professional witnesses by everybody in Dachau. Everybody knew we had professional witnesses. They made jokes about them. In fact, one time we had a play, a little play in the officer's club where we ate. The civilians ate also. And uh, they had this play, and they had one who was representing, he was supposed to have been a professional witnesses, uh, witness, and they even called him Willi Schwarzhändler. Willi Schwarzhändler, which, you know, really means really a uh, black marketeer. And they joked about it, and he spoke with a, you know, a, a dialect, you know, but he responded, and rather, it was rather funny, as a matter of fact. But uh, whenever these professional witnesses would testify, and the testimony would conflict, it always made me feel sorry for the accused, I mean, who I couldn't help but feel, you know, possibly they're not really obviously as guilty as they were said to be, or possibly were innocent. But, I mean, nobody really cared much about the Germans, or really thought much about it. Any accused who presented witnesses in his behalf, who testified in his behalf, was really not believed. There was never any indication that any of the defense witnesses was ever heard, or that any of the testimony which the defense witnesses presented ever played in anything in the court's decision or in the review authority's findings. But uh, as if and at that time, you know, the Germans were still so terribly unpopular, they uh, would talk about it in camp, as a matter of fact, that some Germans would claim, though, this German over here had said that his family was not Nazis and that they didn't really support Hitler at all. And nobody could believe that. In fact, you know, the German would have had a lot of nerve if he'd said that, you know, his family had not been Nazi because, you know, we knew that every family was a Nazi. I mean, everybody was a member of the Nazi party, and all the Germans supported Hitler. We know now that isn't true, but at that time, you know, we really didn't. But as if to dispel the fear, you know, the Germans, and my disliking of the Germans as strongly, I did not live in the camp Dachau, although I could have, but I found a place to live in the city, in a house that was requisitioned from a Frau Bauer, who uh, had quite a nice house on a quiet street in Dachau, in the city of Dachau, which is quite different from the concentration camp. She was very kind to me, and the neighbors were very kind to me, and I learned to speak German, you know, with them, as a matter of fact. 
I uh, got to speaking German, although I later had to study German grammar and learn that so that I you know, could progress. But the uh, living in Dachau, the city of Dachau, was so peaceful and so tranquil, I couldn't have forgotten the camp, you know, which was really fairly grim and awful for me. But uh, I was only there for a few months before I was then transferred into move. They closed the house, and I had to move into the camp where I had problems till you know, the trials were you know, finished. When the trials were finished, the trial I was working on was the Nordhausen Dora trial, and uh, the Dora concentration camp was the one where they were making the V-1 and the V-2 rockets. And uh, that's also the one from which we brought back some scientists, as a matter of fact, to the United States, one of whom I think is still cooling his heels in Canada. After having worked in the United States on the space program for years, he was not permitted entry. In fact, he was almost forced to leave the United States, and he's now trying to get back into the United States. I should mention also that one of the accused in the trial, the Nordhausen trial, in which I sat every day, was a George Frickeye who was the uh, director, in fact, he was the big boss of the Mittelwerk, which uh, Mittelwerk, which was the plant, of course, it was manufacturing the V1, V2 rockets, and the concentration camp was supplying you know, the labor. He was acquitted. He was the only one in the case who was acquitted, and he came immediately, apparently, I assume he came back to the United States. I don't know whatever happened to him. In fact, I really felt like asking. In fact, I, I still may ask and inquire what happened to Rickeye. But Rickeye must have been over this gentleman who's sitting in Canada who can come back in the United States. And here Rickeye was tried and, you know, acquitted of, you know, whatever this man's been accused of. But in any event, the, I worked in the Nordhausen Dora case until the very end. And when it, the sentencing came, which was the last taken in Dachau on December 30, 1947, I took that case, as a matter of fact. I took the last take we took in Dachau, and the place cleared out. I mean, a lot of people began leaving. In fact, a lot of the people had already been leaving. And I then stayed around for about a month. I was transferred then to Bremerhaven, where I worked, where I worked with the Army Judge Advocate General's office there. And before I came home then, that summer, I decided I really wanted to go back to school. I came back. And about a month before my birthday, I came back in July of 1948. That was before the economic miracle of Germany, before the currency exchange, the uh, currency revaluation of the German mark, and uh, before Germany really started on the upswing. This was full three years after the end of the war, and when I left, they were only starting to clean up the rubble in some of the cities. Wiesbaden, I think, was one of the first ones that was starting to clean, but I was amazed. I mean, where I saw a block clean, you know, just an empty block, the dust, the dirt, and the rubble were all gone. But anyhow, I came back to the United States to go to school, but for various reasons, I didn't go to school right away. I didn't go to the East West Coast, where I had been accepted to the university, but I stayed on the East Coast. Uh, my father's health had a lot to do with it. My father was quite ill, and he died within two years. I started going to school at nights in Baltimore, and when my father died, I had to drop out of school, and I went back to Altoon to live for a while before I finally returned to Washington, where I went to school at night at George Washington University, as my friend Mark Harris told you, and where I graduated three and a half years, you know, did three and a half years of college work and three and a half years at night. Quite happy. I never forgot the Dachau war crimes trials, but I mean, shortly after, I, uh, I, I kept thinking about them constantly, and I didn't really touch on them much in school. But a lot that I learned in school reminded me of them. Uh, one of them was in a Spanish class, actually. I took Spanish, and at the beginning of the Spanish grammar, uh, they had a lot of, uh, each chapter had a, a refrain, a German, a, a Spanish proverb. And I used to enjoy them. I used to enjoy translating because, you know, I, they, they were fun to translate. And the, one of the ones that I remember most vividly was, En boca cerrada no entran moscas. 
which means literally, you know, flies don't enter a closed mouth, which means also that if you want to avoid trouble, keep your mouth shut. And uh, I thought of this often because there was at that time a lot of propaganda about a holocaust, which, you know, was foreign to me. I mean, I couldn't understand what they were talking about for holocaust. And the concept of most Americans was that the concentration camps had been built to house, to imprison the Jews. They were, you know, stop off, placed in for the gas chambers, for which I'd never heard about while I was in Dachau, as a matter of fact. The only killings I'd heard had been shootings and... Uh, a lot of people who died, you know, various diseases were not treated well in the dispensaries. And I couldn't accept the fact that the Jews were singled out to be killed uh, in the concentration camp because they were working there. I mean, the Germans had a tremendous labor shortage and they were using these prisoners to work. I found out also that the prisoners received a salary. It was a, a pittance, obviously, but I mean, they received money for their work, and they could spend this money in the concentration camps in whatever fashion they wished. The, most of the concentration camps had lending libraries, and one of them, several of them at least, had brothels, you know, the, you know, accused could frequent if they, you know, could afford it. And uh, they also, you could buy almost anything in the concentration camp if you could afford it. There was a very avid, I mean, a very uh, a rampant black market activity within the concentration camps, and the prisoners, you know, were fairly free to move around. I mean, my concept at first of a prisoner had been that they were locked up, you know, in cells at night, and they weren't locked up, as a matter of fact. I mean, after roll call, they wandered around the camp, and most of them did, before they went to bed or slept. But anyhow, I finally moved back to Washington, I indicated, and went to school, and about a month, or actually in my last year, I met my wife, from my quarter the last year I was in school and I, she went back to Germany and after I finished, one day after I finished, I went back to Germany and got married. I was very favorably impressed with what I saw in Germany, absolutely amazed. I mean, the shop windows were absolutely full and not only full of basic, you know, merchandise, but actually luxury goods. And I mean, the difference between Munich then and Munich as it was when I went over to get married in 1960 was incredible. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it, as a matter of fact. But anyhow, after I got married, the following years, you know, we had, of course, three children, and I was, you know, very busy with my job and everything else, trying to feed, clothe, and educate my children. But I still never forgot the concentration camps, and it always bothered me whenever I heard anyone talking about a Holocaust, because I never could believe in the Holocaust theory. I mean, I had never heard of it in Dachau, and I had never heard of a gas camp in Dachau, or a gas chamber in Dachau. And, uh, in fact, I heard a lot of testimony, but never heard that anyone had been gassed. And once, I mean, I was thinking about the crimes and I thought always about this initial case that I'd heard about poor Rudolf Merkel and what had happened to him. And I once was speaking to an attorney friend of mine and I mentioned Rudolf Merkel in the case and he said, well, he's probably free. He said, you know, they've commuted a lot of the sentences and most of them have been freed, even the ones who've been sentenced to life imprisonment. And that gave me a lot of thought. I used to go to Germany a lot on business, actually, professionally. I went to a lot, you know, meetings in Germany. And I used to wonder then different times if these, this certain accuser or that certain accused had been released. I wondered if I would ever be accosted on the street or maybe someone would have beaten me up on the street for my having taken part in a war crimes trial. I never, I, you know, I was always a little concerned and always wondered. I mean, I'd seen a lot of accused, as a matter of fact, and I didn't know if they'd ever remember me. I mean, I only ever met one of them outside and you know, it was a woman, actually. She was a, a witness in one of the cases. But I never did meet one, and I was always very curious. 
the prisoners had been sent to Landsberg, and I, apparently a lot of them had been hanged, and I'd heard that some of them had been hanged, but I wondered if the Germans harbored bitter feelings against the Americans, and I wondered, I mean, if they hated the Americans as a result of their having been tried at Dachau, and certainly on the testimony of some of these unscrupulous, you know, professional witnesses. In church one time in Potomac, I was asked to give a speech at the adult forum, which was between, you know, they have a morning service and a later service, and in between they had an adult forum for about an hour. And I was asked to speak, and to my surprise, I was asked to speak on my experiences with the war crimes trials. I thought about it, and I decided then to try to speak, you know, give a, an abbreviated version of the truth anyway. And I did and outraged some of the people in the congregation. And I had a lot of people questioning me. In fact, you know, then some of them almost challenged me. But afterwards, a lot of them came to me and said they agreed with me. They felt that I was really undoubtedly telling the truth. But after that Sunday, and considering the questions which the congregation had raised, I searched for books for the war crimes trials and found very little about the war crimes trials in Dachau, as you can imagine. I mean, there was, you know, there were some books on Dachau and some material on Dachau, but very little about the Dachau war crimes trials. At that time, I had not discovered Frieda Utley, nor later on, you know, of course, General Clay's book, which I mention also here. I heard also, began to hear quite a lot about Auschwitz, which I had not heard much about in Dachau, although I heard the name Auschwitz. I didn't really know much about the camp Auschwitz, and I also did not really know that the, uh, uh, the trial on Auschwitz had been held later. But the literature surprised me. For I noted that the con the also that the uh, concept of the concentration camps had been changing ever since the war until the present time. I mean, a couple of people have mentioned Arno Meyer, whose book I also have, Why Did the Heavens Not Darken, which I thought was a rather pretentious name for a, a sort of book. But anyway, Arno Meyer indicates that there were no, con no, 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 there were no death camps in West Germany. In fact, in Germany there were no death camps whatever. And at one time, I mean, I remember specifically, Mauthausen was considered a death camp, an extermination camp. So was Buchenwald, one of the worst camps that I heard about. And yet I read a book, a book, a book, a book about Buchenwald. <laughs> I read a book about Buchenwald that described it completely different from anything I'd ever heard. It was by a Spanish writer, Jorge Sempun, who uh, wrote a book called What a Beautiful Sunday. But he described Dachau in no uncertain terms, and of course it was not pleasant being in Dachau, but it was quite different coming from the, my concept of the concentration camp until then. I was quite surprised. He uh, described a, a city, within a city actually, you know, a, a city under confinement, and with all the intrigues of a city and various, you know, a lot of things going on among the prisoners themselves and among the capos. I mean, a lot of what happened in the concentration camp happened among the uh, inmates themselves there. And these changes, of course, that I read and noted in the books were not only with regard to the function, but who it was who was interned. And I'm sure I'm not wrong in thinking or remembering that at one time all I ever heard about was Jews in concentration camps, and I knew, of course, that that was not true. I mean, in Nordhausen, Dora, they didn't even have any Jews at all. I mean, they had a lot of other prisoners, but there weren't Jews except at the very end of the war when they came there after they fled from Eastern Europe. I'd heard of various facilities and functions in the camp and so forth, and I had heard that, you know, the uh, camps indicated that the camps had, you know, they brutally, I mean, the prisoners were beaten constantly and that, you know, they kept dying, but I mean, I found this was really not true for the, liter the later literature. And Arno Meyer himself indicates that there were only three concentration camps which were joint labor camps and extermination camps. Again, I want to make the point that Germany had such tremendous labor shortage that they could not afford to be killing their people and that no people 
who are to die or to be gassed eventually or to be killed eventually are treated in dispensaries. And every camp had a dispensary. I mean, the treatment they got might not have been the very best, and they might not have had the very best of facilities for treating them, but they had dispensaries and they took the prisoners there, Jewish and others, as a matter of fact, for treatment. They were all treated. Uh, I read avidly, I mean, after all the conversation about the concentration camps kept firing me up, as a matter of fact, and the more the books changed the tone of the nature of the concentration camps, I felt that the more they needed more explanation because each one contradicted the other. As David Irving said yesterday, that, the, you know, the ship was sinking, apparently, and in order to keep from sinking it, they kept patching it here and then patching it there. As a matter of fact, and, you know, I think eventually, you know, even the Jewish people may uh, indicate, you know, what is the truth about the concentration camp. And again, I keep referring to the Spanish proverb, which says about the flies not entering a closed mouth. I think the mouth has been open for a long time, and a lot of flies are buzzing. <laughs> when about three years ago, I heard that the concentration camp files were, had finally been declassified, and that the files were open, would be open to the people, the public, in the archives, I was actually quite excited. The author of the article said that this would probably open up, you know, the uh, war crimes trials for a lot more books uh, on the subject, and I decided then I really wanted to research the files. Uh, at that time, I thought of writing a book, and I thought of Mark Twain's Innocent Abroad, and I thought, well, I'd call mine Innocent in Dachau because I really had been an innocent and I was in Dachau, and I'd really not understood a great deal. But anyway, when I started researching the files, I was quite surprised. I retired from my job, and so that I could research them and went to uh, Suitland, and I felt almost as I were going back into the past. The archives, the file center in Suitland was almost like a window into that past. I mean, I'd go right back in there and imagine my surprise to find files. I mean, you know, I was named, as a matter of fact. I mean, you know, in there, you know, it indicated that Joseph Hallow was sworn as, in as a court reporter, an official court reporter in a particular trial, and I saw the takes that I had typed with my initials at the bottom indicating I'd typed them. It was, you know, and this was 40-some years ago, I remember. I was really quite thrilled. As a matter of fact, but I was also quite disappointed because I found that the files confirmed everything that I'd remembered, and I learned a lot more. I learned also what happened to Rudolf Merkel, who had whose sentence was commuted to 15 years by the uh, 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 review authority, who also felt he was too young and felt that the sentence had been too severe. And eventually he got out, but only after seven years. He'd been in prison for seven years for having struck somebody twice with a stick who had been bombing the area. And when he, this, incidentally, Merkel was only about 15 when this happened. So I found that, you know, an even greater tragedy. But any, the, I also received a big boost in my effort to try to find the files by a very friendly official at the Archive Center. I didn't really know where to look at first. And he helped me. He gave me a list of all the trials that had been held in Dachau with all the names of all the accused. And it was fairly simple then to run down through them with the dates when they were held, the dates sent they were sentenced, and you know when they sentenced were uh, executed. But I also received a big boost by the fact that I keep a lot of official documents, a lot of the documents, a lot of letters. And I had a copy of the official orders transferring to Dachau, so it was fairly simple to you know, then proceed. The, another thing that the files did was reconfirm to me the fact that the, the professional witnesses you know, really behaved outrageously in the camps, and they were not called on this, as a matter of fact. But I also found records in the U.S. correspondence about the uh, professional witnesses. In fact, somebody one time wrote 
to uh, Washington said that some of the witnesses, you know, would be embittered by the years they'd been in the concentration camp, unwittingly or knowingly gave false testimony against the accused. Of course, the implication was that a lot of them had received sentences, and some of them had actually been hanged on the basis of some of this information. For those who might want to question my determining innocence or guilt on the part of the accused, I mean, I would recommend, if anyone has any doubts, that he check the records, because what I'm telling you is actually very clearly expressed in the records. And you cannot help, I mean, it's very obvious, I mean, that the witnesses have lied and that the witnesses, you know, the testimony contradicts each other, you know, itself, as a matter of fact. And I found these references also to professional witnesses. I mean, in the case of the Spaniard, one time they found that the only one who had testified against the Spaniard was a professional witness, and they indicated that uh, uh, his testimony was probably not to be trusted. But I mean, this was two years after the trial, and one of the men in that trial had already been hanged, as a matter of fact, and they referred to this, you know, witness who you couldn't, really should not have been trusted. In fact, in some of the cases where they had the, uh, the trials, if they had not testimony by professional witnesses, they would not have had a case against the witness, whatever. In some cases, I guess, you know, the testimony was really pretty bad. I was reminded of all this as I indicated that I became acquainted with a book by Frida Utley who uh, wrote very strongly and very nastily and very uh, angrily about the Dachau war crimes trials and particularly about the Mamadi case. She wrote about this and uh, also uh, General Clay. There's a biography of General Clay that is out. He has a brief chapter in there also on the war crimes trial. And I couldn't help but be disappointed in his treatment of the, world, the war crimes trial, although he said essentially it's one of the things that I've said in my book, that it's the winner of a war who determines what is right and what is wrong. It's the winner who determines whether something is a heroic act or whether it's an act of treachery or, you know, a terrorist, I couldn't think of the word, or a terrorist. And he also said that, you know, he's wondered, at one point he said, I'm not too sure that when we talk about that type and kind, he was referring to the German use of subversive, war, of submarine warfare, and at the same time we lay down nuclear bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, that you aren't making a distinction that won't stand up in the light of history, or that will stand up in the light of history. The point is, don't lose the war, that's all. And yet, I'm, it's difficult to fault, I mean, someone who's a hero, as much as General Clay is a hero in Germany. But still, I was disappointed. He copped out whenever he discussed the prosecutors. He blamed the prosecutors. Oh, I see someone nodding his head. He's read the book. He blamed the prosecutors for the fact that, you know, they were very anxious to make, you know, convictions, and of course, I guess they are. But if you trace it, you check the records, as a matter of fact, you'll find that they all lead back. There are major policy decisions made in Washington, D.C., and they came down to Washington, D.C. Even the direction of some of the cases, individual cases, came from Washington, D.C. I mean, it wasn't just the prosecutors. I mean, the prosecutors did want to make convictions, but I mean, it wasn't just they. And yet there was an aspect about uh, his booking off where I felt was a cop-out, and I think this was to ease his feeling of guilt. Frieda Otley, in her book, talks about the fact an investigation by two men, Van Roden and someone else, in uh, 1948. And yet, in 1948, while this investigation was going on and they were alleging atrocities to the Americans, as a matter of fact, and their treatment of the German accused, uh, they increased, they more than doubled the rate of people being hanged every day, and, uh, or every week. And General Clay excused this by saying that he didn't really want to leave this nasty, this unpleasant task to his successors, which I really thought was a cop-out. I mean, he could have waited. I mean, the people would eventually possibly have been, and particularly since a lot of them you know, were you know, found guilty on biased evidence, if you, know, if you want to call it lightly biased, if it wasn't really a lie. But from this biography of General Clay, I found out something else that I had not known, and that was that Ilse Koch 
had not, uh, you know, actually used human skin for live shades, and that the skin, so-called skin that she used, human skin that she used, was actually goat skin. He said it was proven in court without, you know, any question. This has come out also in various other books, you know, which I've seen in the meantime. Uh, flying in the face of such statements, I mean, you know, the statement, it's coming out all the time. He's mentioned that this, indi indica uh, this publisher in New York had indicated that, uh, you know, uh, whenever I try to indicate some of them were innocent, I, you know, test the credibility of, you know, some of my readers. Actually, he says, flying in the face of these statements by less than, no less than authority than General Clay. Still another public, uh, publisher had written to me that, you know, he found that, you know, I really wondered what I was trying to do. He said, what are you trying to prove? As a matter of fact, you know, which I really just wanted to write my memories. I mean, he couldn't question. He didn't question anything. I remembered him specifically, and you know, they're obviously true. I mean, I can prove that they're true, as a matter of fact. Uh, perhaps he and some of the others should do, you know, better by reading a little bit more before they speak. They would notice that the preponderance of proof as uh, contained in the records of the trials is with those who profess the innocence of the, some of the German accused. Was the Dachau very uh, tightly sealed? Uh, you said it was a city within a city like... Uh, no, this was Buchenwald. I was talking about Buchenwald. It was a city within a city. I mean, I didn't read a description of Dachau, but I mean, it, it probably was like that. I mean, Dachau uh, was actually... Uh, I hate to say it, but was considered the country club of the concentration camps. I think we'll just take one comment or question, uh, and then. I can't hear you. I'm sorry. You left out. Uh, that it was the civilian population which was destroyed and the factories were left standing in reparation for the Allied forces. I just would like to make that statement. I have a question to you. The accused, were they permitted to have a defense council? And if so, what type of honorable, in quotation marks, men were they? We had a very honorable defense counsel in the Nordhausen trial. He was Colonel Major Leon Pallada, who was a Spaniard, of America, I mean an American of Spanish descent. He did a very good job, by the way. And most of them, I think, you know, tend to be a little bit lax. They didn't really care very much. They all had a defense counsel, an American, who defended them, or you know, supposed to have defended them. But as I've said, the defense's case was never given much credit or not much attention was paid to it. Okay, we'll take just one more question then. Mr. Jameson? I want to make a comment on the uh, trial of uh, Jürgen Piper, the Malmedy trial. If you look at photos of the court, he was tried by a military court martial. His court was almost entirely Jewish. Uh, the uh, defense attorney was uh, Colonel Everett, who uh, not only did a fine job in the trial, but spent a considerable amount of time after he came back to the U.S. to revise the sentence of Piper, saved his life. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Piper was later murdered in France by some uh, leftists. That's really true. I did not sit on the Malmedy trial, and there was another trial in which we had an excellent defense counsel, and that was the Colonel Simpson, who tried uh, the case of Piorkowski, who was the commandant of Dachau at one time. And he tried to intercede for him with the government here, but he wasn't paid much attention to. 
I mean, the government could not have, uh, I guess at that time, with a clear conscience, have found somebody not guilty if he'd been the commandant of Dachau, even if he had been not guilty. And uh, uh, Piotrkowski was described to me as a harmless man. A harmless man. He didn't bother anybody. In fact, was a very good man. He ran a fairly good camp. 